welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. In the Australian media and some people's minds, I will be perpetually the 26-year-old young kid who launched this ill-advised takeover until recently, my Wikipedia entry was, you know, naive, idealistic, young, 26-year-old, launches $2 billion takeover, could have had it all, messed it up, and, you know, ends 150 years of family history. So it's sort of this, almost this tragic young figure, a 26-year-old, and it's, it is frozen in time, frozen in concrete, if you will. that sound familiar? Not the details of the story. Those are the beats of Warwick's journey. But the feeling that a failure or misstep or somebody else's judgment is still following you around. That your identity in a very real way has been frozen in time and not in the most encouraging ice. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. This week, Warwick and I have a wide-ranging discussion about how to turn a heat lamp, sometimes even a flamethrower, on those frozen negative perceptions from the past that can stick to us in the present and threaten our future. We unpack several steps you can take to restore your true identity, from recognizing your life matters to dealing with the lies spoken over you, from forgiving yourself and others to embracing the beauty in your brokenness and using it as fuel for your unique life of significance. As a guy who uh, who creates, uh, you know, who writes for a living, me, I always get jealous when someone turns a phrase, and I'm like, oh, that's really good. And Warwick has a phrase he's gonna talk about in this discussion of identity. And I'll point it out, you'll hear it when you, uh, you'll notice it when you hear it. But there's some, some great perspective, Warwick, that you have in this blog about not only the importance of, I, of identity, but a different way of looking at identity that we have tended to do here on the show. Yeah, absolutely, Gary. I mean, as listeners would know, we talk about identity a fair amount, uh, but we talk about it more, don't get your identity from work, from money, from, you know, image, accolades, you know, get your uh, identity from within. And all of that's true. But here we're talking almost about broken identity, or as uh, I talk about in the blog, uh, identity that's frozen in time. This is a bit different. And sometimes it's, you know, identity can be um, actually not our true identity. It can be almost a false identity. So sometimes uh, we're perpetually a 16 or 17-year-old teenager in high school. Maybe we missed out on the basketball team. Maybe we were a bit overweight, you know, negative self-image. And sometimes we never really see ourselves grow out of that. Other people might, but we perpetually see ourselves as who we were as a teenager or as sadly a lot of uh, folks on our podcast who've been guests and I'm sure listeners have faced uh, during the darkest days of a crucible moment, you know, on that worst day, sometimes we have this negative self-image, either I'm a failure, you know, I made these huge mistakes, I hurt people, or it may be uh, horrendous things were done to me, and 
somehow when bad things are done to you, for some people, it understandably causes a negative self-image. So your negative self-image may be rooted in your worst day of your crucible moment. You may be frozen in time from high school. And so really what this discussion is, how do you get out of that pit? How do you, you know, tr how do you unfreeze this uh, false identity, this identity which is a lie, which can be yeah, frozen in time and decades can go by and you just can't get seem to get out of that hole of that negative uh, self-talk and negative identity. And that's the phrase that you turned that I'm jealous of, frozen identity. Love that. I read that in the blog and I was like, oh, that's that's really good. I'm, I wish I'd written that. So um, I didn't, though. You did. And it's in the blog. And and you're right, Warwick. This discussion, we, we often talk about identity. Beware of an overdeveloped sense of identity, right? You get your identity from how many zeros are in your bank account, uh, what kind of cool car you're driving, that that kind of thing where you're 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 maybe pushing to be bigger than your britches. And we're talking about a different kind of identity crisis in this case. It's almost underdeveloped identity. You're not walking in who you really are. You're you're you're, you're stuck in a place where something happened to you, someone spoke something to you, someone spoke something over you, you encountered something and you haven't been able to shake that negative perception and the ramifications that come from it. So as soon as you brought this, this subject up, Warwick, it occurred to me, if anybody is an expert or can speak to what it's like to have frozen identity, it's you. Because still, there are, there are places and I know you'll unpack why, there are places who still will refer to you in the context of your takeover of the family media business as young Warwick. True? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I'm like, now, hard to believe the decades go by over 60. So you don't tend to think of somebody that's, you know, a little over 60 as being uh, young Warwick. But my dad was so Warwick, and you know, I had like I don't know, three knighthoods in a row in my family. Uh, you know, Sir James Rudding, Fairfax, Sir James Oswald, and my dad, Sir Warwick Fairfax. So as growing up, they didn't seem like such a bad deal. You know, it was my father, Sir Warwick, and young Warwick, kind of the heir apparent. You know, still in the media in Australia, that phrase will be coined. And so my frozen in time moment, uh, as listeners would know, I uh, grew up in this 150-year-old family media business started by my great-great-grandfather. By the time I uh, came on the scene, it was a massive $700 million, 4,000-employee company, uh, newspapers, magazines, TV stations, radio and newsprint mills, had the Australian equivalent of New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, major opinion leaders, launched this $2.5 billion takeover to bring the company back to the ideals of the founder and have it be well managed. Family sold out, didn't work out. Three years later, the company goes bankrupt and is trying to hit the recession. So that's the very brief Cliff Notes version. But in the Australian media and some people's minds, I will be perpetually the 26-year-old young kid who launched this ill-advised takeover until recently, my Wikipedia entry was, you know, naive, idealistic, young, 26-year-old, launches $2 billion takeover, could have had it all, messed it up, and, you know, ends 150 years of family history. So it's sort of this, almost this tragic young figure, a 26-year-old. Right. And it's, it is, 
frozen in time, frozen in concrete, if you will. Like I'm trying to remember that second uh, Star Wars movie, Empire S- uh, Strikes Back. Remember when the guy gets uh, frozen in, I don't know if it's concrete or some metal, you know, and he's like, yeah, right, frozen. Han and it's Solo, like, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that that's kind of like me. I'm like frozen in whatever substance that is, and I'm I'm still I'm still there in most people's minds. You know, it's like unfreeze me, please. You know, <laughs> and the phrase "Young Warwick," that name, it's not just designed. It was not just designed. Those who hung that name on you, it wasn't just designed to indicate your youth. It was designed to indicate, as you hinted at right there, it was designed to indicate you were inexperienced. You were. Over- in over your head that you were you were the the whelp you know the the whelpish warwick who wasn't quite ready for prime time when you launched the takeover that's where the sting comes in it's not so much as you said you were young warwick in the sense that you're the 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 son of sir warwick but the way that it was used against you was to paint you as not to freeze you as a failure and i think that's would you say it, it, it has been that you spend some time frozen in that uh, in that spot. Yeah, and as you know, we talk about, and as in the book, there are cartoons, editorial cartoons, that really personify this sort of frozen in time, young Warwick, young, na- you know, naive, idealistic crusader that kind of uh, fails in a sense. So yeah, you know, there's one of me as this uh, Mongol warrior. You know, again, I'm like 26. I'm there, kind of as this barbarian, you know, attacking the gates of Rome, right. I don't know quite what it would be, and destroying this family dynasty and destroys in like a day what took more than a hundred years to build. And there's other cartoons, you know, the man behind the mask, I never gave interviews, what's he thinking? How do you create a uh, small business, give Warwick Fairfax a big one? All these cartoons help crystallize this sense that um, my identity is frozen in time. And what happens is, while there's still that perception in in the media in Australia, it would seem, then you can't help but having your own identity frozen in time. Right. Other people's perceptions become your reality and my mm-hmm. internal reality. And so it's not easy to to shake those. I mean, some people have nicknames for, for decades that they don't necessarily like, but it goes back to high school or whatever. And they just see you as this, you know, screw up from when you're in your 20s. And it's like, I'm not that person anymore. It's like, yeah, nah. <laughs> you always will be the screw up in their twenties, you know, who did right. dumb stuff. Yeah, it's like you know, uh, I'm sure there are people listening right now who were told at some point you'll never amount to anything, right? Who were told at some point um, that's why X Y Z Q P L Y happens to you. Those words, words can, words have meaning and words can hurt and. and when those words are spoken, they can sort of bore into our spirits, bore into our soul, bore into our psyche. And we can indeed uh, be suspended in in animation, if you will, at that time when those things might have been true for a period of time, but it's moving beyond those things. The, the name of the show is Beyond the Crucible. And what we're really talking about here is how do you get how do you get beyond the identity that has sort of stuck to the bottom yeah. of your shoe as you're going through life? But before we do move on to uh, the great points you make in the blog about how to kind of move beyond that identity, I want to say this. The joke's on those people, Warwick. The joke is on those those journalists who said, 
naive young kid could have had it all and blew it. Because guess what? That young kid's grown up into a man who does indeed have it all, at least all that matters. You've talked about it many times. Family. You've got a best-selling book, you know, a Wall Street Journal best-selling book. You're, you're, you're speaking in places across the country. You have achieved things that you would, I know you've said it before, you have all that matters. So that, that what, what, the, what, as the Bible says, what the enemy meant for evil, uh, God has turned to good. And what, what that label was supposed to make you feel, it's true. You, you do have it all, at least what matters most to you. Yeah, I mean... I- that is well said. Um, you know, we talk a lot at Crystal Leadership on this podcast about a life of significance being the measuring right. stick for every every human, a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. I mean, I'm blessed to have a, uh, you know, I married an American girl uh, who I met in Australia. We've married over 30 years. I've got three wonderful kids from 30 down to 20, uh, almost 24 um, in a few days. I'm just blessed to have uh, work that I do with a wonderful team of crucible leadership, such as yourself and the rest of the team, you know, between uh, speaking, the book, uh, podcast. I feel like I'm trying to uh, give voice to people's stories and just really champion that your worst day doesn't define you. I've been on a couple of nonprofit boards, including my church, being a church elder at my non-denominational church. Yeah, I mean, I'm just... I'm blessed, and my self-image is definitely in a much better place. I mean, scars tend not to go completely away, but I think I have a more realistic, more accurate picture of who I am and what I'm worth. And I, I believe we all have intrinsic value, obviously, as, as children of God. But yeah, it's it's been an evolution. But yes, I'm I do feel blessed, absolutely blessed. And that's a great way to sort of move into the next. Uh, area that we're going to talk about, and that's the the seven points that you have about how to unfreeze your identity. Because we started out talking about, you know, here's the frozen identity and it's young Warwick, and then we come out, and then out the other side where you're living the life of significance. Now it's time, right? You're going to unpack some things that listeners can do to, to put the meat in the sandwich, right? We have the two pieces of bread on the side. Now we're going to put the meat in there. Um, and, and step one that you enumerate in the blog for folks who are struggling with a frozen identity is to recognize that their life matters. What do you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, so let's, the starting point for many will be then the, the image is frozen in negativity, either because of a mistake they've made or maybe some horrific things that were done to them. Either way, your image can be really corroded. And you might feel like, you know, what is the point? I'm worthless. Nobody can love me. Nobody should love me. I'm like this leper that people should say unclean and just toss out on some garbage heap. And um, I'm not worth anything. So the best thing to do, I mean, I'll, I mean, people who really go into negativity can say, I, I need to end my life, or you can really right. get down a dark space. And so really the first standpoint when you're thinking about your life matters is that the world needs who you are. The world needs your gifting, your talent, your soul, your very essence. And so by wallowing in self-pity, recrimination, anger, be it yourself or others, it robs the world of who you are. It actually robs your family 
you know, your wife, your husband, your partner, your your friends, co-workers, it robs them of the essence of who you are. Because uh, I think we're all, um, as we'll talk about in a minute, sort of beautifully made in the image of God. So, you know, the first standpoint is your life matters and you're a gift on this earth who, uh, from my perspective, is meant by God to, to contribute to the world. And so wallowing in self-pity, while it can be understandable, it doesn't serve you. It does not serve others. It robs people of your gifting and your essence. And that sense of negativity, uh, it also tends to um, spread and it hurts people around you. And coming to the realization and really owning that your life matters is like planting a flag, right? My life matters. I may not have it all worked out after this. I may still trip and fall sometimes, but that recognition that your life matters is a, is the perfect first point because it then leads to the small steps that come next. And the next one, the second step that you talk about in the blog is you are loved. Yeah, you know, I love the image, just to dwell on what you just said for a moment, of planting the flag. We talk a lot in Crucible Leadership is that uh, when something horrific happens to you or you make a, t a horrific mistake, you know, rather than, you know, hiding under the covers for the next 30, 40, 50 years until life ends, which it will for all of us, you know, you have a choice. Either, you know, just wallow away the rest of your life or to say, this was awful, it was unfair, unjust, or I was an idiot, but how do I move forward? And so that's really what you're saying. That plot, the flag, is, is the choice we talk about on pretty much every episode of Crucible Leadership is, I'm going to make a choice that my life matters, and I'm going to make a choice to move forward. It's a fundamental decision. And so really, moving to the second point, the sense, um, which I think reinforces the sense of your life matters and uh, builds onto it. You know, I believe that we are all loved by God. I think my, you know, Christian faith perspective, uh, like Psalm 139, it talks about we're beautifully and wonderfully made. There's this uh, notion that God loves us. We have intrinsic value, every human being, just because of who we are. And beyond just you know the divine, the eternal, uh, the universal, uh, that, that sense of love, I think most of us have at least one person who loves us. Many will hopefully have friends and family who are cheering us on. There's very few of us that has nobody that cares about us. Very few of us have not have a, have at least one friend, one family member who just feels bad for us, you know, wants us to get at that hole, whether it's of our own making or others. Uh, and so we are loved both by God and I believe by others. So if people, other people love us, including God, maybe we do matter. Maybe we do have, uh, maybe our life should matter. Maybe our negative uh, identity needs to change. Uh, so, yeah. you know, and that's people that know us well. They love us in spite of our foibles, in spite of our mistakes, idiosyncrasies. They're not, it's not like this blind love in which they don't know us. Oh, they know exactly who we are, but they choose to love us anyway. That should, that should cause you to think positively. Right. There is, interestingly enough, as we're talking about this subject, in the current issue of Entrepreneur Magazine, there's a very short column in the beginning. Um, by a man named Dennis Gillen, who uh, is the executive director of a suicide prevention center. 
And uh, he talks about he's a keynote speaker and he you know suffers from lack of confidence sometimes and he's not sure how well it's going to go over. And there are times that he says, right, as we're talking here, there are times that his his identity, his negative self-image is, I just feel like quitting. This is what he uh, he writes in, a, in an article he, he, he titled The Purple File. He writes this. When I consider quitting, I grab the file, the purple file, and come back with renewed determination. Then he asks the reader, do you have a similar file? Somewhere to put cherished testimonial, comment, a piece of feedback, or kind note from a coworker. Something that lifts your spirits and reminds you why you do what you do. I recommend it. I read that article this last weekend, and I created, there's my purple file. And I went through, and you're in here, by the way, um, for the uh, nice thing that you wrote um, in your signed copy of your book to me. But I went through, like, I've kept a lot of cards through the years from when I left jobs and, and people were wishing me well. And this is just the first thing I pulled out of this purple file. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a, gradu- a high school graduation card. That's 40 years this year that my brother, who passed away in 1995, but this was back in 82. This is what he wrote me. Just one little bit that he wrote me. I want you to know, win or lose in life, I'm never prouder at any time as when I can call you my brother and best damn friend I have. Thank you for making my life with you so happy. That's from my brother who is no longer with me. He's been gone for, you know, almost 25 years. Um, That's amazing stuff. When you talk about you've got one person who loves you, you've got people, coworkers, those kinds of things. When Dennis Gillen talks about these things in his article, this is the this is the lifeblood of shattering that negative identity that can that can stick to you, I think. Fair? Oh, absolutely. Those are almost sort of uh markers of grace. I mean, reminded when, you know, Moses was spent 40 years in the desert, he would instruct mm-hmm. the Israelites to erect memorial stones as a way of just remembering God's grace and providence. And so, yeah, those sorts of things. I mean, I have, you know, three adult kids, you know, they've, we have at least two out of the th- three are writers. And I mean, and we write birthday cards, as listeners know, we, you know, say positive things about whoever's birthday it is. You know, you look at all those cards and they write in detail about, you know, why they, you know, love me and what have you, right. uh, obviously, you know the stuff and the uh, that pe- some very kind folks wrote and the endorsements to the book. I mean that those things matter, and you, you remember that. And it's hard. It's funny. I often say it's easy to remember bad things that people say about you. It's not easy to remember the good things because we tend to want to dismiss it. It's like it doesn't compute. So we like with our negative self image. But that's why I right. think what you're saying, this purple file, is because we forget those things. And reading them, it's like, you know, maybe I'm not perfect, but maybe I do have value. And so it's such a good idea, that purple file concept. Yeah. And and if the concept that we're discussing here, and it is, is frozen identity, a purple file, the stuff inside this file is a heat lamp that melts that frozen <laughs> identity and brings Amen. you back to a place where you you understand, okay, I'm not all those bad things that I'm thinking about myself right, right. now. And, so and it's, not po- right. it's not positive, happy talk just for the sake of it. These are yeah. accurate assessments from people that know you. So it's bringing you back to reality is what that's doing. Very, very, very wisely said. 
Okay, the third point, uh, three of seven, um, after your life matters and you are loved, is the world needs us. What do you mean by that? So, it's really a progression. So, you start with a decision, okay, my life does matter, God loves me, other people love me. The sense that, you know, because we're all uniquely made with talents, abilities, and experience by God, from my perspective, we have a unique set of combination of gifts and talents and experience that not one other human in the billions of humans on the planet have. Every person is unique with a unique set of characteristics, gifts, and talents. So, the world needs that. What would life be like if, you know, we didn't have some of the people that, uh, whether it's Mother Teresa, Abraham Lincoln, you look at, you know, Abraham Lincoln went through a pretty tough life. He lost a mother, I think, when he was extremely young, uh, you know, a woman that he, you know, loved uh, early on before he married his wife. He lost a couple of um, several elections. I mean, he could have just gone away and hid and said, "You know what?" And he has suffered from melancholy, which is a in modern language we'd call depression. He could have said, "You know, I'm a loser. You know, uh, the world's against me. God's against me. Look at the tragedy with." lost kids and a mother and lost elections, but he didn't give up. He kept pressing on. He just had this sense of drive, hope, and a sense of calling. You know, the world needed, right. America needed what he had to offer. You know, he believed, without getting too much into Lincoln, he believed in uh, fighting against the spread of slavery into new territories which would become states, and from there evolved into slavery is wrong and a sort of moral sin, if you will. But that's that sense of the you know the world needed his gifts and his calling to oppose slavery. If he just wallowed in melancholy, I mean, the world would would not have had an Abraham Lincoln. Which you know, who knows who knows what would have happened in this country with slavery? It's almost scary to think about it. But you know, I'm not saying not almost none of us will be Abraham Lincoln. But it's the point is he didn't wallow in his melancholy. He fought that and fought negative self-image to contribute in a powerful way to the world. And we all, in our own small ways or big ways, can, ha can have a, a massive effect on, on folks. Right. And what you just said about Lincoln not believing his negative self-image, that was fueled in, 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 in some part by what people said about him too. And that moves nicely into your fourth point, which is deal with the lie, right? Lincoln got criticized. He was the backwoods guy from, you know, mm -hmm. from Kentucky and then right. Illinois, and he was never yeah. going to amount to anything. And they, he kept getting, you know, underestimated, underestimated, underestimated. Point four, deal with the lie. What do you mean by that? Whether a crucible is your fault or not your fault, whether it's abuse or huge mistakes or, you know, just this, you know, they think of you as a screw up from being a teenager or in high school, it's realizing, and this is a choice, it is a lie. It is not who you are. Yes, we've made mistakes, but just because you've made mistakes doesn't mean you're a bad person. There are very few people that you can say are quote unquote evil. There's some in history that maybe are worthy of that name, but most of us are not. You know, most of us have just made mistakes or had bad things happen to us. So, part of it is that, you know, is is to deal with it. And that may mean help. I think for many of us, and I've certainly had some, you might need uh, help from a therapist, a counselor, a psychologist, psychologist, maybe from close friends, mentors, uh, family members. 
and just to say, you know, I have this negative self-image and, you know, I don't know, why is that? I said, well, that's because of maybe the divorce of your parents, or maybe it's because of the mistake, but, you know, that's not who you are. Remember all these good things you did? Remember the people you helped? In a sense, it's almost like the uh, the purple file you're talking about, in which people actually give right. you specifics. Remember you did this and this and this and this. Remember that person you helped and that person. Oh, I guess I'd forgotten that. Well, how can you be such a bad person given all of these things that you did that most people will never know? I'm sure, you know, uh, way back when, I know you've obviously had some challenges, which you mentioned a couple of podcasts ago. You could have talked to, you know, uh, you know, your dad, your brother, some close friends, and they said, Gary, don't you remember you helped this person and that? But remember when you did this and that? Well, your lowest moments, you're not thinking about that, right? So deal with the lie, whether it's counseling or friends or family or both, but um, you can't help anybody until you help yourself. It's almost like, yeah, it's a both and, external and, and internal, but you've got to deal with the internal, with the internal lie, because that, that cripples your ability to move forward and help anybody else. If you think you're a screw up and a lapper, how in the world are you going to have the energy to help a living, another living soul? You're not. So you've got to deal with the lie and uh, don't believe that negative self-image and their uh, specific steps. You just got to be willing to take, make the choice, deal with the lie. I have a phrase I use for myself that sort of gets at both of the ways we talk about identity. And I say, uh, I am less than my greatest achievements and I am more than my worst failures. So that helps me from getting believing my own press too much and believing my own, you know, my worst critical reviews too much. But we are, when someone says to you, you'll never amount to much, that's a lie. Um, because no one's seen in the future and knowing that you're never going to amount to much. They're just, they're passing judgment on you. Deal with that lie and, and, and move beyond it, as, as you've said. Um, point five in uh, this very good blog, which you will be able to find, if not now, listener, shortly it will be up at crucibleleadership.com. Uh, point five is to forgive yourself and forgive others. Boy, we spend a lot of time talking about forgiveness on this show, don't we? <laughs> we do. And honestly, that wasn't in the book, at least, not the original book I wrote. Um, really? Wow. I, I, maybe it is, but you know, I, I wasn't a big emphasis, put it that way. Uh, uh, maybe I'm just forgetting, but uh, who knows? <laughs> but uh, I think let's put it this way: it's grown to a lot more prominence uh, through the podcast, interviewing people, and as you and I have dialogues. You know, thoughts come to mind. So basically, you know, you're dealing with your negative self-talk and not believing the lie that your life matters. But at a certain point, to not believe the lie, you have to deal with the lie, which is, in my case. I destroyed a 150-year-old family media business. I caused friction within the family, lost billions of dollars, uh, made life unstable and uncomfortable for 4,000-plus employees. You know, if you want to take it to its extreme, because of all that instability, maybe even hurt the nation of Australia in some way. I don't know. It depends how big you want to make the lie. And, right. you know, there's sometimes kernels of truth in these things. It's just the lie magnifies them massively. So part of it is forgiving yourself. Like in my case, look, I was 26. I met well. I was young, idealistic. My dad had just died in early 87. There was instability in the family for decades before I came along. I listened to the wrong advisors. You know, there's, there's all sorts of 
not ex- these aren't excuses, but there are reasons why. And so part of it's like, you know what? You tried hard, you were young, idealistic, forgive yourself. Sometimes, for instance, uh, you know, uh, those who've been abused, when we talk about forgiving others, it's not, you could say, well, what was done to me was unforgivable. And I, I understand the concept, but you forgive others, as we often say here on Beyond the Crucible, because you're worth it. Because by not forgiving others, it's like drinking poison. It's just this anger and bitterness stops you moving forward. And I don't see how anger and bitterness allows you to have a positive self-image. I mean, there's, there's no room for positivity left in your soul because it's consumed by anger and bitterness and rage. You know, uh, It's all negative, destructive uh, thoughts, which right. I don't pretend to understand, but when you're angry about others because of what they did to you, you can somehow, because of what they did to me, I'm somehow worthless. Somehow that concept, one follows the other. So for you to see yourself as having worth, you've got to be able to forgive others because again, you don't excuse the act, you don't condone the act, but you forgive them so that you can move forward. In that sense, right. you could say it's self-centered, I suppose, but whatever it takes to move forward. But forgiving yourself and forgiving others, if you don't do that, like in, in the podcast, we've had 100 episodes, not one person that we ever had on this podcast who's moved beyond their worst day has, has ever not forgiven others or themselves, not one, not one of them, everyone you know, has forgiven because that's the only way to bounce back from your crucible. Uh, or at least put it that way, if you don't do that, you, I can't see how you will bounce back. So it's absolutely critical to be able to move forward. And I'll add in another aspect of that, thinking of, of, of forgiveness as, as sort of a 360. There's forgiving others. Uh, there's, there's forgiving yourself. But there was this incredibly insightful guest two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> me. Um, kidding. Uh, but I was a guest two weeks ago. And one of the things I said in uh, when I was going through Alcoholics Anonymous, um, that was asking for forgiveness. That was a key part for me coming to a place where I believed I was worthy of forgiveness, me forgiving me, as other people forgave me for some of the things I did. Uh, again, nothing criminal, but I was just not a very moral, ethical, kind, nice guy. Other people forgave me that. And that helped me as well. So I think it's a three-headed thing. It's it's forgive others, absolutely. Um, ask for forgiveness, I think, is also critical. And then uh, forgive yourself. I think those three things work in, in harmony. Yeah, it's so well said. And, you know, when you ask for forgiveness from others because of things you've done, hopefully they'll say, look, I forgive you. But sometimes they won't. This is oh. Right. You can say what you want to say, but I'm never forgiving you until like the day I die, which is pretty difficult to hear. But even asking forgiveness, there will be some healing come that comes from that, even if they don't forgive you. Not everybody will, because you feel like I've done the right thing. I've acknowledged what I did to that other person. And you feel like I've done what I can. I'm not responsible for people's attitude, for people's response. I'm just responsible for what I do. So even if the, even if not everybody forgives you, it still is freeing in a sense the sheer act of asking for forgiveness. If that makes sense. Absolutely, it's it's AA talks about it in this way: all you're responsible for is your side of the street. So mm-hmm. you're asking someone for forgiveness for what you know 
as AA puts it, making an amends for what you have done to them, toward them, that hurt them, is just sweeping up your side of the street. You can't, you can't hold yourself responsible for their side of the street. Just doing that, you're absolutely right, can make you feel like you're in a much better place. And, and as I said on the show a couple of weeks ago, it's amazing when you ask for forgiveness, how many people will forgive you uh, who will say, absolutely. Um, and just one more thing I want to add as part of this, when because it's important transactionally when you're talking about forgiveness to, to, to close that circle. So many times someone will come up and say, you know, oh, I'm sorry. And, oh, and, and our response will be, oh, that, no problem, whatever. To me, that's denying them closure. In other words, if someone says they're sorry to me, I want to say back, I want to close that loop for them and say, I forgive you. Yes, uh, absolutely. Not just no problem. It's no big deal because that doesn't, in some way that doesn't complete the transaction. It's they're, they're making themselves vulnerable. They're apologizing. We ought to at least say, yes, thank you. And I forgive you. Cause I think that then makes moving forward even a little bit more easy. As I've written the book and obviously sent it to, you know, pretty much every family member I've, I've, I've had, I've had other people that were on the other side of the takeover that, you know, things were rocky way back when say to me, you know, you showed a lot of courage and vulnerability right. in, in writing that book. Well, you have to believe that meant a lot to me, that, that somebody that was on the other side, that, you know, wasn't feeling too warm and fuzzy to me at the time, uh, would say that, yeah, I had courage and vulnerability and basically admired. Because, yeah, I don't sugarcoat things. I talk about my own mistakes and don't throw rocks at others and but that's part of the healing, you know. Yeah. What you just described, the way that you were, that you got uh, forgiveness from others, that that's a flamethrower to the frozen identity of quote unquote young Warwick. I mean, that will right. melt that frozen identity like that. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about that can really propel us forward. All right. Indeed. Another place we can go to propel us forward, point six in your seven-point um, uh, prescription for ways to uh, unfreeze your identity from a bad place is uh, to embrace the broken and the beautiful. What do you mean by that? I think as humans, and this is certainly definitely a faith perspective from my Christian faith, is we may be broken, but we're beautiful. I think in, it's funny we've been uh, at a sermon just this last Sunday from our pastor, um, talk, I think it was Second Corinthians, and it says, you know, we have this treasure in jars of clay, basically treasure being, you know, sort of God's light, so to speak, and uh, jars of clay being our broken bodies. Uh, I remember also, we did a, a blog, I don't know if it was a year ago or more, in which we had a, uh, a picture of, of a vase that was broken but it was glued right. together with like gold paint or that's, that kind that's of thing. That's so funny because I'm going to talk about this after you're done talking <laughs> about it. I'm going to add some more details. So please go on, go on, go on. Uh, so just the sense of a, you know, we're broken but beautiful. And in some sense, I think from my faith perspective, God can use our brokenness to help others. So in my case, I was broken by my own failures and circumstances, but it gives you a sense of compassion for others. It wants you to help, and I, it gives me a calling to help shine a light on other people's worst days and how they bounce back, to offer you know words of hope and healing, so to speak, to write the book I wrote. So, you know, very often with maybe you know the 
having me guess we've had, you know, 80, 90 plus on the podcast. So many have used their worst moment, whether it's failure, abuse, to reach out to, whether it's other cancer survivors, other survivors of abuse, other people who have failed in terms of businesses. They've used, to use that oft-used phrase, their pain for a purpose. Uh, so some in amidst the ashes of the broken of your worst day, there can be ways that beauty can come out of that and you can use that as a, as a light to help others. Uh, so um, yeah, we can often find our calling out of our worst moments, as hard as that is to think about. And what you were talking about, Warwick, and I have a note right here to, to, to talk about it. Uh, in the blog, the blog was uh, October 19th, 2020, called Beauty and Imperfection, Vulnerability for a Purpose. But what you were describing was is the, Jap the Japanese art of kintsugi. And I'm going to read what that is. Kintsugi is the Japanese art of putting broken pottery pieces back to be back together with gold, built on the idea that in embracing flaws and imperfections, you can create an even stronger, more beautiful piece of art. Every break is unique, and instead of repairing an item like new, the 400-year-old technique actually highlights the scars as part of the design. Using this as a metaphor for healing ourselves teaches us an important lesson. Sometimes in the process of repairing things that have broken, we actually create something more unique, beautiful, and resilient. And I have a personal story I want to share about that. So I don't have a lot of art, but years ago, a couple decades ago, I bought these things called Poets Bottles. They're, they're very, um, very intricate, uh, delicate three bottles and they're 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 etched with the words faith hope and love from first corinthians that was why i got these three bottles and i i have them on a stand in our kitchen on a nice lighted stand from the bottom and one day when my my in-laws were over i was playing with the dog i was trying to show how the dog plays catch with a big ball and we bounce it to the dog and the dog hits it with her nose and the dog hit it with her nose and it went into the into the kitchen and it knocked over one of those bottles. It broke the love bottle. It fell on the ground and it broke. I was devastated. My stepdaughter, Alyssa, who is an artist, picked up every one of the broken pieces I had put in the garbage. And this is what she did with them. Oh my gosh. So there's just, the love bottle. So just uh, for, why don't you describe for listeners who may not be able to see yeah. it? So what is it, what is it you're holding? Yeah. I am holding one of those uh, those poets bottles. Um, it's the love bottle, and what my stepdaughter Alyssa did was glue it back together and then use gold paint to seal up and highlight the cracks. And the, wow. the most beautiful part the most beautiful part of that story is that she said when she did it, the most beautiful part of that story is she said because love is never completely broken. Wow. Boy, what, and that's what, what wow that's what we're talking about when we talk about embracing the beauty and brokenness and that's um, uh, you know that's exactly what this bottle symbolizes and what uh, what you were talking about earlier symbolizes. Yeah, I just want to highlight what you've said you said I mean that's such a wonderful illustration I think our brokenness doesn't you know doesn't necessarily make us weaker it can make it uh, stronger. If we, to use that, what we say all the time, if we embrace the crucible, if we learn from it, use it to help others, 
it can give us a strength, a courage, a calling that we never had before. So, you know, it can be broken and beautiful and stronger than ever before. Right. You know, it can make you stronger. It's, it's, it's a choice, but it can make you, you know, more, more resilient. And the, and the thing that I said after I, after she did this and she gave it to me is I said, you know, before when it was in its perfect mm-hmm. state, it was, mm-hmm. it was something I liked a lot. Now it's something I treasure because of what she did to peace. I mean, the beauty that she put into this is far, yeah. far, far greater and more meaningful than the beauty that the artist even put into it. So what you're saying is it was beautiful before, but now that it's broken, it's far more beautiful than it was. Right, right, yep. That is awesome stuff. Yeah, so I was so... I, I, it was so funny when you brought up that I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to talk about that too. So I actually pulled the bottle out here and I've been all nervous the whole time because I talk with my hands a lot and I don't want to knock it over. So um, let's move on to, to point seven. So uh, we've gone through the first six points. The first six points just to uh, go through is one, your life matters. Two, you are loved. Three, the world needs us. Four, deal with the lie. Five, forgive yourself and forgive others. I added into that, um, uh, ask for forgiveness from others because that helps as well. Six, embrace the broken and the beautiful in your life. And the seventh point, Warwick, that you make in this blog on crucibleleadership.com is to remember our mission and um, unpack that for listeners. So we talk probably as much as anything on this podcast beyond the crucible or in crucible leadership about living a life of significance. It's what life is all about. It's a life on purpose, uh, dedicated to serving others. So part of, you know, getting over the lie of changing our identity is, is rewiring our brains. A lot of people know far more than I do about neuroscience, but it's not easy to rewire our brains, to rewire our identity. But part of that is, um, yeah, you want to deal with the lie, we're broken and beautiful, but what's the mission, what's that unique calling? For many of our guests, it, it, the root of their mission or calling often comes out of the crucible they've gone through. It is for me. You know, crucible leadership came out of my experience of losing a $2.25 billion, 150-year-old company. How do you bounce back from your worst day? How do you lead a life significance? The book, the podcast, everything we do all came from that. So it's, you know, as you find that mission and you begin, you know, it's not like a one and done. I mean, okay, the book's done. We're going to be thinking about things for this year. And who knows whether we'll have online courses or all sorts of things we're thinking about. Right. Crucible leadership. You keep moving forward, moving forward. And that mission, as you walk into it, it provides, it provides healing, you know, as, um, in the fall, uh, you know, Gary, you were with me, uh, you know, everywhere I went, I uh, was speaking and the dialogues we had as, you know, we were at Seton Hall, at Taylor University in Indiana, where my Christian school and my kids were. We were at some business groups, XBX in Maryland, North Carolina, ACG also in North Carolina as part of that. All of these things we were at, and especially with the young people, you know, they had, you know, a line of folks waiting for me to sign their book. Uh, Books just, you know, went when people said, ah, you know, the students are busy, they won't all take your book and, you know, which is fine either way, but, and the questions they asked when you felt like, 
I'm actually helping some real people here, you know, and it wasn't so much about, oh, look at me, I'm wonderful, because my attitude in terms of dealing with that is, oh, glory be to God, oh, glory be to God. When everything good happens, that's, I proverbially or physically get on my knees and say, oh, glory to God. But, but, but those sorts of things make you think, you know what, there was some purpose in this pain. There, there's some meaning to what happens, and that provides a level of healing and a level of healing to your identity. Absolutely. And I think it also, it also adds gravitas to the, to the counsel and the wisdom that you give to other people. In other words, I love the fact that young Warwick and all that that is meant to symbolize by those who, who stuck you with that nickname, it's because of young Warwick that those kids at Seton Hall were in line waiting for you to sign their book and waiting to talk to you. It's, it's, again, I go back to what the enemy intends for evil, God uses for good. Those, those, those things, those, that frozen identity thought out, you can bring it into the present then, and you can refer to it, not live in it, but refer to it. And that gives you uh, authenticity and gravitas and experience to allow you to speak into people's pain today. That truly is fuel for a life of significance. Once you get that that identity uh, unfrozen and you and you set it right, when you can refer back to it and draw lessons from it, that's what we talk about all the time here. That learning the lessons of your crucible is the fuel for your life of significance. Yeah, I mean it's so well said. I mean the person I am now. Um, I wouldn't have been that person without what happened to me. I mean, you, you refer to that phrase, I think it's like from Genesis 50, they meant it for evil, God meant it for good, referring to the life of Joseph, who as a young man was sort of a full of himself, had this coat of many colors, hey, look at me, I'm the favored son. I mean, really unwise stuff. Right. Just gets thrown into a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery in Egypt, goes through a bunch of trials, ends up being basically the prime minister of Egypt. So clearly, despite his, you know, it certainly wasn't all his fault, but some of his unwise behavior uh, that caused a lot of jealousy, God used that. And so I look back and, um, you know, I could have been, I don't know, a couple of billion dollars wealthier. I would have been in this family business, bit of a gilded prison. I don't know how happy I would have been. <laughs> but, you know, what I'm doing now, none of that would have happened without that. The life I live, just the sense of fulfilling and uh, having a wonderful family, my kids don't get to grow up with the whole baggage and bondage of um, family business stuff, which you know is tough to grow up with. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm blessed. We had a resilience series in which a number of guests, uh, one in particular, said, you know, what I went through uh, was a blessing. A uh, woman, Stacy Kopass, who was injured at twelve in a straight in a you know above ground pool diving accident. It's hard to fathom that, but there's this sense of, you know, reframing it to say, you know, maybe it was a blessing, maybe it was a gift, mm -hmm. what I went through, because it enables me to be who I am, to write what I write, to have a passion and hopefully compassion for people, to want to help people bounce back from their worst days, to live lives of significance, it gives you a, a mission and a calling. So, and that does change your identity. I, I'm not perfect, you know, in that sense, but I don't see myself as young Warwick, you know, screw up messed everything up. I said, yeah, I made some mistakes, but I have a mission in which I'm, I'm caring for others. I've served on some nonprofit boards. I feel like I am making a difference in the world in my own way. Right. 
and you know I, I go to historical figures a bit too much perhaps but and you know none of us are going to be almost none like a Lincoln or a Roosevelt but you know Franklin Roosevelt is just the case study in how tragedy turned his life around you know he was this young uh, young guy of aristocratic New York wealth life of the party everybody loved him you know eye for the ladies outgoing person it's hard to see how he could contribute much to the world this you know rich kid you know who uh uh, everybody, you know, liked at parties. Then he gets polio when he's, I don't know what, late 30s or something, somewhere around there. And it fundamentally changes him. He had to come back from what at the time was like a death sentence. You were meant to hide away and a bit like a leper. You know, you weren't meant to, you know, be seen in society. Well, then he becomes president in the depths of the Depression. Well, a wealthy rich kid, how would he be elected in the Depression? How could he relate to anybody's suffering? But because right. of what he went through, it's like, look, look how Franklin Roosevelt, it's so hard for him to walk. When he says, all we have to fear is fear itself, the gravitas of those words came from people had at least some sense uh, of, of the tragedy that he'd gone through. That There's no way that the Roosevelt of World War II or the Depression would have been that man without that tragedy. There is no way in the world I can't imagine he would be an elected president. So again, it's not to say you or anybody else is going to be like a Roosevelt or, or a Lincoln, but you know, tragedy can transform us into something that can be a real gift to the world, whether everybody knows about it or hardly anybody does. It can give you a mission that can be transforming both your identity and change other and help other people's lives. So it can it can be huge. Absolutely. Since the two historical examples that you've used in this episode are both presidents, um, I'll say that the commander of of Air Force <laughs> One has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign, and it's time to put the it's time to put the leader of the free world on the ground. But before we do that, um, what's one you know if if you're going to pull the best highlight, the best advice, the best counsel, wisdom, experience that you have here? What would you want to leave? What do you want to leave listeners with before we go? I think as we often say, you know, if today's the bottom of the pit is, is your worst day, it begins with one positive step. And so if I had to say, well, what's one positive step? I'd say it starts with don't believe the lie. Don't believe that you're a good for nothing, screw up, that shouldn't have been born, that today's the day you need to end your life. I mean, it depends how you know, far you want to go. Don't believe the lie you know, you are broken and beautiful. You are made for a purpose, the eternal. I believe God loves all of us. So don't believe the lie. The enemy, you know, if you believe in spiritual warfare that some do, don't believe the lie that, you know, you're a screw up, you never should have been born, and all that kind of talk. Begin to think, move in a positive way. If God loves me, and if there's at least one other person on the planet that loves me, maybe my life is worth redeeming. Maybe I can move forward, even if it's in a small, positive step. All it takes is one little drop of grace, and the flower can grow. Just one little drop of positive thought of grace, and you'll be able to move forward, no matter how small that step is. It begins with, don't believe the lie. And there you go. Um, Air Force One's on the ground. I can hear, I can hear hail to the chief. 
Um, we are, we've landed the plane for sure. So listeners, thank you for spending this time with us. Uh, as we've talked about this extremely important subject of how do you, you unfreeze your identity from the bad place it may be in for some of the, some of the setbacks and failures and traumas and tragedies that you've been through. And do remember, uh, as you've been through those, uh, crucible experiences that they are not the end of your story. This podcast exists to reinforce that idea that your crucible is painful. We know that, but it's not the end of your story. In fact, if you learn the lessons, if you follow, as Warwick talks about here, some 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 great tips on how you learn lessons from, from what's knocked you down and you apply those to your life, that can actually be the beginning of a new story that will be the best story of your life. Because where it leads you is where it's led young Warwick Fairfax to a life of significance.